I love movies. We are in the midst of a summer series, a little summer series, a little three-weeker called At The Movies. And uh, all, all we're really doing here is exploring a few movies, uh, hopefully ones that you know, ones that made a reasonable amount of money in Australia last year, because that way, you know, the idea is possibly a lot of you have seen them. Uh, and, and to go, what are the themes? What is coming out through cinema, through popular culture, through media that speaks either into or against the message of Christ? And do we know? And that's really at the heart of it. Do we actually know? Are we being thoughtful, prayerful, intelligent consumers? Because I think, not to step on a point I want to make later, but I think one of the silliest things we do as human beings is we either say, that's bad or that's good. And the truth is rarely that clear, right? It's rare that you watch a piece of media, and and I was having this conversation with Tex actually the other day. It's rare that you watch something and go, that is purely bad purely bad. I mean, you might be, like the quality might be terrible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the content. And it's rare that you watch something you're like, that is purely good. Because as soon as human beings are behind it, creating this content, you've got to ask yourself, what, what is the message they're trying to convey? I think it's interesting. I'm a massive movie nerd. As a friend of mine astutely observed, like, oh, I, I wonder who programmed this series, you know. Yes, I definitely programmed this series. One of my life goals is to watch every best picture Oscar nominee ever. And they go back to 1927. So that's a lot of black and white films that my wife won't be watching with me, right? That, that's quite a lot. Again, like if you were here last week, you heard Jen open up our series with an amazing message on A Star Is Born, on the perils of fame, on our desire to be loved, our desire to be known. And if you didn't catch that, honestly, it's a cracker. Get on the podcast, get on Podcast Republic or iTunes or SoundCloud, your favourite podcast. Download that and have a listen. It's great. And she speaks out of a personal, she's so fascinating because she could care less about fame, my wife. But in the media industry, she's rubbed shoulders with all these famous people and she talked about that. She doesn't even know who they are. Like, it drives me nuts. I'm the one going, oh, Dev Patel was there? Oh, I loved him in these seven movies. And she's like, who's Dev Patel? Oh, the guy I had lunch with yesterday. I was like, get out of here, Jenny. Stop it. You don't treasure this. <laughs> so this week, we're exploring the film Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Now, Quick straw poll. Hand up if you've never seen any of the Harry Potter movies, including these, and never read any of the Harry Potter books. You've never consumed any Harry Potter content at all. There's one person. Really? Nobody else? Only one? Oh, I'm surprised. I thought it would be higher. Oh, there's a couple. All right. (laughs) I see that hand, those hands waving and pointing. Yes. Um, It's okay. This is quite common. There's always a couple of people that haven't consumed any Harry Potter content. That's fine. But I do want to touch on that because there's usually a reason, especially on church. I want to touch briefly on the topic of witchcraft just to get it out of the way and then we are not going to have a full sermon on witchcraft, okay? Yeah, good, because nobody's hankering for that. So just think about the the title of this movie, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. If you are not familiar with Harry Potter, this entire sentence is gibberish. Like, just think about that. It's gibberish, absolute gibberish. So... We're going to talk spoiler-free about the plot, but let's, let's talk about witchcraft for a second because there's many people, particularly in America, but maybe uh, this was the case for you and your family at some point if you were up in a Christian home, where as the Harry Potter books became really popular and at the turn of the century, they kind of started to really become part of the cultural landscape. They weren't just books. They were like books taking over the world. People started to ask the question, is Harry Potter advocating for witchcraft in the real world? And so there are a few years where uh, the Harry Potter novels were amongst the most banned or requested to be banned books in America for about five years in a row. Now, 
The short answer is yes, of course it's advocating witchcraft. The name of the school that the children go to is Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The the movies, the books, they are about tapping into a magical supernatural world and controlling powers. Yes, definitely. It would be naive to say this doesn't advocate for witchcraft at all. The question is, should we consume this content or not? Should we consume this content? So I think Paul would say this, okay? He would go, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we see a little window into why I think it's generally okay to consume this content and why it's actually up to you. So what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is he's dealing with this new church, this young church who is wrestling with all these big questions. They're going, should we do this? Should we do that? Oh, by the way, we did all these things. And Paul's like, that's terrible. You can't do that. You should have asked me about those ones and not these ones. So he gets to 1 Corinthians 8. And he finds out that what's been happening is that this Corinth, it's in uh, sort of Greece, it's in modern day Greece. And um, these people who used to be pagans have become Christians and they've gone to the markets and they bought meat that was sacrificed for idols to eat in their own homes. And a lot of them who came from pagan idol-worshipping backgrounds are going, hang on, should I be eating this? I don't follow these idols anymore. I've given that up. I follow Jesus. And Paul says, all right. He basically asks a simple question. When you eat this food, do you follow Jesus less? And for some people, they were like, actually, it really messes me up. Yeah, I do. And he goes, okay, don't eat it. And to others, he says, does it doesn't mess you up? And they're like, nah. He's like, all right, eat it. And, and some of them then said, but hang on, I, I eat it with friends of mine and it does offend them. And Paul says, ah, this is where it gets to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. If you love your friends, you will not consume this content if it affects them. You will not consume this food. Because at the heart of the message of Jesus Christ is not do this right, It's where is your heart at in loving God and loving other people? And so the question I would say is this, not is witchcraft bad? Yes, practicing witchcraft is bad. That's its own conversation we can have afterwards. But if you are saying watching content with witchcraft in it, is that bad? I would say you need to be discerning and prayerful. You need to ask yourself, is this appropriate for me or for the people I'm consuming it with? Is it affecting them? I think of it just personally with my kids. I'm always asking the question, are they at the place now where they can really, honestly, I can say, they can separate reality and fantasy? Because the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, is sometimes a bit more complicated. We ask ourselves these questions. So we go back there and we go, does this affect me? Does this draw me into performing witchcraft? If the answer is no, praise God. Does this affect my friends that I watch it with? Does me watching it affect how they are drawn to things of witchcraft. If the answer is no, praise God. If the answer is yes to either of those things, stop it immediately. Is that, do, we, do we understand that? There is, by the way, I just want to acknowledge, there is a, a counter-argument that's pretty good too. I'm just saying this is where I land. I watch the Harry Potter movies. I read the Harry Potter books, except Cursed Child, which is not canon. All right? So that's just, that's just another, that's just a, you get it if you get it. It's all right. So enough with witchcraft. If you'd like to ask me more questions about that, I'm really happy to chat about it because I know for some people this stirs stuff up with them and that's totally fine. We've all got different stuff we're working with. All right, let's, let's kick on. Let's do a quick Fantastic Beasts rundown. This is the second Fantastic Beasts movie. It was 11th in total box office take in Australia in 2018. You know there's a lot of franchises out when a Harry Potter movie doesn't crack the top 10. Uh, so Marvel has a lot to answer for there. But it hit 11th. It is based off a 125-page 
fake textbook that, you know, is a, technically it's one of Harry Potter's textbooks that he takes to school. And J.K. Rowling, the author, was like, oh, this would be cool. People enjoy it. People will buy it. 125-page textbook turned by Warner Brothers into five movies. Five movies. 25 pages a movie. J.K. Rowling is writing her own check and buying small nations at this point. Like, this is unbelievable. More power to her. Anyway, quick synopsis. In an effort to stop Grindelwald's plans of raising pure blood wizards to rule over all non-magical beings. Again, I'm so sorry if you aren't familiar with Harry Potter stuff because this is gibberish to you, but we'll keep going. Albus Dumbledore enlists his former student, Newt Scamander, who agrees to help, unaware of the dangers that lie ahead. Lines are drawn as love and loyalty are tested even among the truest friends and family in an increasingly divided wizarding world. So one of the key themes in the Fantastic Beasts franchise so far, we're two in, there's three to go. <laughs> so many movies. It's unbelievable. And I'll go see them all. Like, this is the thing. I know I'm going to go see them all. It doesn't matter at this point if they're bad. Like, the Star Wars prequels prove that to me. I'll still go see them. Anyway, one of the big themes running through the Fantastic Beasts series is war. War. So it's set in time in between World War I and World War II. So it's quite natural that war's at the forefront of everybody's mind. And one of the questions people are asking, a lot of the characters are veterans of war. So Newt Scamander himself, the Eddie Redmayne character, the main character, uh, and his associate Jacob, these two guys are both veterans of World War I in different forms. And so there's this fear in the back of everyone's minds like, oh, not another war. Not another war. And this plays on everybody. And it forces this idea of whose side are you on? And this really reflects that era, that World War I, World War II era, where you started to form into these two sides. You had the Axis and the Allies. You had good and evil. Whose side are you on? Are you a neutral person like Switzerland? Are you an independent force like Russia? Whose side are you on? It's a question in everyone's mind when it comes to war. And the climax of Fantastic Beasts is a speech given by Grindelwald, which is very, it's a, oh man, I just think it's an amazing scene, actually. I think this movie, by the way, is a solid B+. Plus. You know, it's, it's good. It's not great. It's good. But this scene is really well done. And it's a scene where Johnny Depp's character Grindelwald and Johnny Depp playing it makes the villain factor go up a bit. And then he like, overacts it by about 150%. So, you know, it just adds that to the accent is just its own thing. It's incredible. He uses, it's a sidebar. He uses the word non-magic to describe people who don't do magic, but he, said, he pronounces it with a French accent. He goes, non-magique, and it's just one of the most ridiculous, pretentious things I've ever seen in a movie that doesn't matter. Like, it's crazy. Anyway, Johnny Depp gathers all these people in this big old auditorium in a mausoleum, actually, so he's surrounded by death as a metaphor. And he gathers them and he begins to give this speech and it's this big rally. And he starts off by saying, people say that I hate the non-magique. And he says, I do not hate them. I do not. I do not fight out of hatred. It's like, okay, now we're concentrating on what he's just said, which is I do not hate them. And we've just forgotten. He's just said, I'm going to start a war. And he starts this big rally and in it, in it, the language he uses is so interesting. Overall, you just, you just look at it. If you knew nothing about it, you go, oh, standard dictator stuff. But the language he uses, he says that non-magic people will attack and repress people with magic. He says that magic blooms only in rare souls and that we fight for love, we fight for freedom. Finally, he shows them this visionary picture of what will happen if, as he says, if we do not rise up and take our rightful place in the world. And again, if you haven't seen this movie and you're listening to it, you're like, yeah, okay, this sounds like kind of fairly standard rally speech stuff. 
But the thing about it is everything he says is true. Everything he says is true. From what we've seen in the movies, the non-magic people do repress people with magic. From what we've seen, there is something special given to us about magic in these movies. And there is a sense that non-magic people will attack magic users. There is a sense that they are fighting for something important. So why is he the bad guy? Why is it the crimes of Grindelwald? Fascinating ideas. Let's get to war again. Because war in the West right now is waged totally differently. If you think of war and you think of World War II and you think of, you know, tanks and, and, uh, and planes, you go back to World War I, you think of the evacuation of Dunkirk and all these boats chugging across the ocean. But now it's totally different. We do war remotely. We do war digitally. We do war culturally. We live in a cultural moment where Russian hackers and Russian bots have probably influenced the election of an American president, mostly through social media, as an act of war. This is the kind of murky world we live in. This is the idea of, of, of war as we live in it now. And because the face of war is changing, because it is war, in any time there's war, you get that question you heard in the clip tonight, whose side are you on? You're going to have to pick a side. And I don't know if you've noticed that the culture wars we are in are trying to force people to polls. I don't know if you felt that pressure to go, I'm on one side and they're on another side. It's a dangerous place to be when you identify another group of people as them. And what isn't changing, though, are the casualties, the casualties of war. In 1918, at the end of the First World War, American Senator Hiram Johnson coined this famous phrase when he said, the first casualty when war begins is the truth. He says that basically because of our own self-interest, and the things that we want to happen, truth goes missing. We are willing to believe what we want to believe, especially in times of war. We have self-interest, so truth goes missing. And we live in a moment as well where truth is a rare commodity, where world leaders talk about fake news, where media members talk about your truth and my truth, and that's good for you, but not for me, where the 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. This is the world we live in. And I see, I see two kinds of ways that truth is expressed that are difficult and dangerous that we have to wrestle with in our moment in time. And if we're going to be studious, thoughtful, prayerful people, followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we need to wrestle with these two kinds of truth. The first is post-truth. Oh, go on. Actually, show this. Show the next slide. Go on. That, yeah, that, that's me dressed up as Harry Potter. I just thought you'd enjoy that has no bearing on any points I want to make. I just thought you'd like that. Okay. I'd like to pretend I'm 12 years old then. I was a lot older than that. Two kinds of truth that I think we need to wrestle with in the 21st century. The first is post-truth, as we just touched on. Post-truth. Post-truth is the idea that facts are fine, but they're not as important as your feelings as what you want to believe. They're not as important as your emotions. In this idea, truth is whatever you can get people to agree to, and if enough people agree to it, then it is the truth, regardless of what the facts say. So as a quick example, the 2016 inauguration of President Donald Trump. I'm going to continue to use the term president for anyone in a form of office, because I think we've really lost the ability to be honouring and respectful of people in positions of power, regardless of our opinion. So I'm going to continue to use this term. President Donald Trump's inauguration in 2016, 
There was a crowd science professor, which apparently is an occupation, and uh, he estimated that the crowd at the inauguration was somewhere between 300,000, 600,000 people attending. So roughly the same amount here tonight. And the, that estimate is roughly a third of the people they estimate were at the 2009 inauguration of Barack Obama, President Obama. So they estimate that this amount of people were at President Trump's inauguration. They estimate that about three times as many were at President Obama's inauguration. Okay? So that's what a crowd science professor has said. But this is what President Trump's press secretary said, Sean Spicer at the time, stated that the crowd was the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration period, both in person and around the globe, and accused the media of reporting false crowd estimates to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration. It's a quote. Now, automatically, you've heard one person talk about the estimates of the crowd. You talked about, you've heard President Trump's press secretary talk about what he thinks. You've automatically picked who you believe in your head, haven't you? That's not important, just for this moment. Here are two things that I know, I believe, I know for sure. Number one, President Trump does not like being discredited. We see a lot of examples that he likes to appear important and successful. Here's a second thing I know for sure. The bulk of the American media and the global media does not like President Trump and does everything they can to discredit him. So on one side, we've got an estimate that in no way can we prove as fact. In another way, we've got a statement that in no way we can prove as fact. Both sides claim truth. Where is truth? You see the difficulty here? There's a sense in that we can go, oh yeah, obviously it's... X, or obviously it's Y, but you have to choose that. And that is the difficulty in the post-truth world, where we say, no, this is truth. And somebody else says, but I have facts that say that that's not true. And they say, oh, well, I know it to be true anyway. Like, ooh, that's a dangerous place to be. A dangerous place to be. The danger of post-truth is it says, mine is the truth even without facts. Yours is a lie even with facts. The second idea kind of leads on from this, and it's a mindset called from postmodernism or deconstructionism, which basically says this about the truth. In postmodernist truth, stay with me here if you're not a sociological stats person, uh, in postmodernist truth, truth is subjective. Let me give you an example. Something went around the internet a few years ago called the dress. Does everybody remember the dress? And everybody looks at the dress and you go, what is it? Is it blue and black or is it gold and white? And people are like, well, it's definitely this. You're an idiot if you think it's the other one. And the other's like, no, it's not. It's definitely that. You're an idiot if you think it's this. And eventually the creators reveal, no, no, it's been designed in a way so that you see it from two different light perspectives. So some people will see it blue and black. Some people will see it gold and white. A very few people will see both. Uh, but that is what it is. And it's intended to give you this perspective of going, all truth is subjective. Here's the problem with that. The dress wasn't green and red. Not from anyone's viewpoint. If you thought it was green and red, guess what? It's not that your truth is right. You're just wrong. The danger in this idea of postmodern truth, the idea that all truth is subjective is this. It says that mine is right and yours is wrong. It, sorry, it's, sorry. The idea is not that mine is right and yours is wrong. Is that mine is true for you and yours is true for you. Mine is true for me, yours is true for you. The danger with this though, how do you govern that? Because you take it to its logical end and, so, and you say to somebody, that's, you can't do that. And they say, why? It's true for me. That's how I feel. You're like, oh. 
And at some point, you run against the laws, and they say, well, you can't police me doing this because this is true for me. This is who I am. This is how I feel. There's a danger in this because you can't actually govern it when there's no truth, when there's no truth at all. And if the thing about it as well is that this idea of it's true for you, but it's not true for me, if you scratch the surface of most people, what they really mean is that's true for you, but if it affects me in any way, you're wrong and I'm coming after you. You've got to be really careful. It's a world with less love. What does this have to do with the Bible? You may be asking, and that's very fair. The Bible, you may be not at all surprised to hear, has some claims about truth. Has some claims about truth. There are times where the writers of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write things down and say, this is true. There's tons of other times where they write things and they leave it to you 2,000 years or more later to go, I'm trying to work out what this means and how it applies to us now. But there's other times where they're like, this is simply true. You need to understand it. And that's fascinating because, again, we live in a culture where truth is murky. It's not that there's one shade of grey. There's not even 50 shades of grey. There's probably quite a lot more shades of grey. I don't know. Go down to Bunnings. Check out their solver panel. I bet there's thousands of shades of grey. Okay? So what's fascinating to me, though, is that when I read the Scriptures, the place I read most about truth is the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John... My first thought, and if you're somebody familiar with the Bible, the first thing you might think about is, well, when I think of John, I think of love. John is constantly talking about love to the point that it's almost ridiculous. It's the most, like, he's clearly like the most art student of all the uh, disciples. You've got the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are all like, yeah, 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 let's get a pretty clear setting down of facts. And John's like, instead of calling myself John in this, I'm going to call myself the disciple Jesus loved. You're like, ugh. You just imagine all the other disciples rolling their eyes. You go, just, can you please just call yourself John? Like, no, 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 because that's how I understand myself, which is actually, I'm making a joke, but that's actually a really important thing. John sees himself through the lens of love in his relationship with Jesus. And that informs everything he writes. So why does he write so much about truth? It's fascinating. So we get to this passage that we looked at today, that Jonathan read for us, our teaching text today. John chapter 18. It is a masterclass in how to manipulate language and not answer questions. This is what happens. Part one, Pontius Pilate goes out to meet the Jewish leaders. Now, you've got to remember, in this ancient time, Rome rules. We're in the height of the Roman Empire. Israel is a country. They govern themselves, but they are in the Roman Empire. So they govern themselves until they butt against the Romans. And then the Romans say, no, 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 I will take it from here, thanks. No, we're going to fight against you? Okay, we will crush you. And as it happened in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. The Israelites said, you know what? We're not going to stand for you Romans anymore. And the Romans were like, okay, sent in in the legions. Bam, no more temple, no more Israel, all done. They were ruthless. Pontius Pilate is the man who is in charge of that area the area of Galilee and Judea where the Israelites lived. And so there's a king, King Herod, who you may have heard of, who who was ruling in effect over Israel, but he's kind of a puppet king. When it comes down to it, the true power comes from Rome. Does that make sense? So the Jews, the Jewish leaders, you would think they have the power, but they can't. They bring this problem to Pilate because Pilate's in charge from a Roman perspective. And they say, listen, we've got got this guy. And Pilate's like, all right, so... um, what are the charges? And the Jews say, well, the charges are he's a criminal. Pilate's like, uh, okay, well, if he's a criminal, judge him. You've got your own laws. And the Jews say, no, but we can't kill him. 
Now just listen to what's happening here. Pilate says, what are the charges? The Jews say, oh, he's a criminal. That's some like 1984 underground communist China stuff going on right there. What's his crime? His crime is he's a criminal. Take him away. That is scary stuff. And Pilate says, okay, all right, frankly, he doesn't really care. It's like, you've got laws, deal with him. But the Jewish laws said that they couldn't execute criminals. Only the Romans could do that. So they bring the problem to Pilate, and Pilate's like, well, judge him if he's a criminal. That's your problem. It's a Jewish problem. And they said, no, no, we can't execute him. So, oh, so you don't want judgment, you want execution. You don't want justice at all. You don't want truth, you want death. So Pilate sort of goes, ah, frustrated, wanders back inside, gets the people to bring Jesus out of the dungeons and bring Jesus before Pilate. And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, classic Jesus, never answers questions directly. Gosh, it must be frustrating. Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? Which is pretty gutsy, really. <laughs> and Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Basically, he's saying, what do I care? What do I care? You're talking about Jewish truth. I'm a Roman. That's a Jewish problem. I deal with Roman problems. What do I care? This is garbage. Because what happens if something goes wrong and a new king turns up, says, I'm the king of the Jews, and half the population says yes, the other half of the population says no, and there's civil war. Guess who's in trouble from Rome? Who's Caesar calling? Pontius Pilate. That's who. So this whole question reeks of inauthenticity. He's a liar. This is important to him. This is his problem. But he's washing his hands of it, as he famously does later. Pilate says, Pilate replies, your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? That's a pretty clear question. Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. It's like, oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> what have you done? My kingdom's not of this world. You're not answering my question at all. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate's like, aha, 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 the king thing. So you are a king. You are a king. And Jesus says, well, you say that I'm a king. And then he replies, but let me tell you, I was born for this. I was born to testify to the truth. And anyone who is on the side of truth is on my side. It's a challenging statement. And Pilate famously shrugs, what's truth? What is truth? And then he goes outside and he tells the Jews, he can see, find no grounds for charging him. And while I won't spoil Fantastic Beasts, I will spoil the Bible. Spoilers, the Jews still find grounds for charging him. What do we learn from this passage? Well, number one, the Jewish leaders manipulate truth. They lie for their own ends. This is the post-truth culture in full flight. Because the thing about these are things that we wrestle with in the 21st century, and we go, man, this is the 21st century's unique problem. They're never unique. The same brokenness, the same sin, the same issues crop up throughout human history. And every time we have to walk with Christ and ask the question, Lord, what are you calling us to do at this moment in cultural history? What do we have to do? What's the call in our lives to respond? It's post-truth in full flight, because Pontius Pilate says, tell me the truth, what crimes did he commit? And the Jews say, he's a criminal. They don't care about the truth, they care about what they want, about what they need. 
And so Pilate then turns around to Jesus and Jesus goes, okay, you want answers? And Pilate says, yeah, <laughs> not really. Because Pilate is doing the thing where that's true for you, but it's not true for me. So you're talking about a Jewish truth, a Jewish problem. I'm dealing with Roman truths and Roman problems. What do I care if you're the king of the Jews? A really interesting thing is recorded, though, in Matthew's gospel, where Pilate's wife says, do you know he's meant to be the son of God? And Pilate, a Roman who believes in the Roman gods and people being half gods, demigods, suddenly gets scared because that steps into the Roman view of the world to a degree. And anyway, totally different kettle of fish. I find that interesting. Three other people in the room do too, I'm sure. Um, but Pilate is talking from this postmodernist point of view. He's saying, it's true for you and not true for me, which, like I said, is a worldview without love because it says, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. I don't want to deal with it. The only reason he deals with it in the end is because the Jews will not give up. What do we learn from this? I sometimes think Pilate made a pretty good point when he said, what is truth? Even though it's one of the most cynical quotes in the Bible. He says, what is truth anyway? But when you think about the conversation he's just had, okay, maybe fair enough. I can't get a straight answer out of you, Jesus. And it's the point everybody seems to be making, I feel, in our culture right now. Your truth is yours. Mine is mine. It's all relative. Let's just be cool. Right? But the controversial claim of Jesus doesn't let us believe that. And that's where we get into trouble as Christians. Because Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, oh, I've answered this question. See, you're coming in here and the Jewish people are saying, let me tell you what truth is. It's what we want right now. And Pilate, you're over here and you're saying, let me tell you what truth is. Ah, it's whatever happens to be true for you. And Jesus says, the problem is you're trying to grapple tr with truth as a concept and own it. You're trying to grapple with truth as a concept and own it. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is introducing you to truth as a person, standing in front of you, asking you to have a relationship, asking you to engage with me. It's not that truth is a concept to be wrestled with. It's that it's a person to be followed, a person to be loved. Because back in John 14, he's challenging his disciples and they say, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus says, you do because you know me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. None can come to God but through me. And that's why they crucified him. Because he didn't fit in those boxes anymore. He didn't fit in this idea of, no, 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 you have to comp comply to our truth, Jesus. They would have made him, the Jewish people would have said, you are the greatest rabbi ever if you just do what we say. Because we see the miracles you're doing, but we just don't like what they mean. We don't like where they're coming from. So we don't want to acknowledge them. And Pontius Pilate doesn't mind. He doesn't care. He's like, yeah, you do you. Just don't step on my toes. But Jesus says it doesn't work that way. When you meet me, I'm not calling you to believe in something and say, this is true and I'm right and you're wrong. I'm calling you to meet me and wrestle with the idea that truth is found in a person. Life is found in a person, which is why when they talk about Jesus coming again in John, he says, life came into the world, but grace and truth, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's how they came in the world. Jesus talks to his disciples in John chapter 8 and he reminds them that if they follow his teachings, they're living out what it means to follow him. And we follow him when we know him and when we love him. And when we know him, we come face to face with the truth if truth is a person and the truth sets us free.
This is the radical claim of Jesus that transforms lives and causes so much trouble. Because Jesus repeatedly again and again in the bits of the gospel we sometimes like to gloss over says things like, I came to turn father against son, mother against daughter, brother against sister. Not because I want you to hate each other, but I just know that when I bring the truth to you, some of you will say yes. Some of you will say no this way. Some of you will say no this way and rebel against it in different ways. But if the truth is here in front of you, if the truth is here saying, not just believe in this, but saying, come and see, follow me. That's a totally different story. That's a story that changes the world. If we go back to Fantastic Beasts, we've got to ask the question again, why is Grindelwald the bad guy? Because if all he talks about is truth. By the way, Newt Scamander, one of his famous quotes at the start of the movie is, I don't do sides. And at the end of the movie, he picks a side. And we as the audience all cheer him on. Interesting. Grindelwald is the bad guy, not because he's talking about truth, but because he uses it as a weapon. Truth is not about meeting truth and being embraced by truth and falling in love with truth and discovering a God that has done everything for you and is calling you home. Truth for Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beast movie is about rallying people around a cause that he likes to attack others. And truth on the other side is about defeating Grindelwald because they don't like it and they think it's wrong. But the alternative vision is just, that's my truth. And Jesus doesn't let us stand in either place. He just doesn't let us stand in either place. I got to tell you, I feel like this message beat the snot out of me this week. Like I was really, I'm not a well-organised person. And for me, I was really, really well-organised for this. And I'm, I'm there this afternoon at home with the kids and I'm still tearing my hair out, wrestling in my spirit, pouring my heart out to going, God, what do you want to say? Because it's so important to know that you have to meet Jesus. And if you've never done that in this place, I've got to tell you, that's what changed my life. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say this as like, oh, that changed my life. It'll change yours. It, it, I'm saying it because it turned me from someone who was completely broken and looked in the mirror and said, I can find nothing of worth in me and looked at a God who said, I see everything in you, not because you're good, but because of my incredible love, because I've sent my son to die for you. But as I wrestled with God with this, and I said, God, what, what is the message you want for people to take? And look, the, the key message is this. Truth is not an idea to be owned. It's a person to be loved. You need to know that. But then the key step, if you're a Christian here, and the thing that I need to repent of, and the thing I wonder if others need to repent of here tonight as well, is that I've known the truth, and I've kept it to myself, or I've known the truth and it hasn't set me free because it's been actually a lot less about setting others free and more about telling others that I'm right and they're wrong. And maybe I've weaponized Christianity, not Jesus, not following Jesus, but this institution, this religion that we call Christianity that we built up around Jesus. 
Maybe I've weaponized that to use against people. And look, I probably haven't done it much face to face, but I know who I am in my heart. I know how I judge people from afar. I know what I'm thinking. And this is the truth. This is the thing we all have to wrestle with when we look in the mirror. Because one of the things we do as Christians is we can sometimes look at people and we go, they look like they've got it all together. But no, they don't. They're doing the same things we're doing. They're breaking us. They're breaking us apart and we're breaking them apart. We're all looking at each other and judging one another. We're all trying to put ourselves up on a pedestal so that we can look at others below us or we're telling ourselves we're worthless because we don't think God's powerful enough to lift us up. And I've got to tell you, both of those are lies. And if you're a follower of Jesus in this place and you have let your passion slip, if you have said turning up to church is enough or maybe not even that, it's time to turn back to Jesus, not to Christianity, to Jesus, to the person of Jesus who loves you, who takes the broken pieces and makes them whole and is calling you home. It is not enough for me to lead a church where we come together and go, I like this community. And I do. I love you all. I love this community. I love people. I see people change in this place. I see people grow and learn to love one another in ways they couldn't before. But it doesn't matter if you're not set free. If you don't, when you meet Jesus, get set free, you're holding on to stuff. You're telling Jesus he's not God of your whole life. And Jesus says, well, I've got to tell you, the truth is the only way you'll be set free is if you follow me fully. And to do that, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to the times you justify your behaviour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I swore at that person on the road and I know I shouldn't, but you should have seen what they... No. Don't justify what you're trying to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know I was thinking badly of myself and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just an anxious person. No, 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 no. Actually, in Christ, you're more than conqueror. Oh, yeah, 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 I know I'm making these bad decisions and I'm dating whoever and sleeping with whoever. And like, I know that's not what Jesus wants. It's like, then, then stop. Because what it requires to follow Jesus is everything. This is where it hits the road. This is where we get in trouble as Christians. Because actually, what we tend to do in the 21st century is go, hey, that's cool. Yeah, like, I love what you're doing. Yeah, no, you do you. Or we go down the other route and we're like, do you know what? That's wrong, and I judge you. And what we're meant to do as Christians is come down and go, I need to introduce you to Jesus, a person who changed my life. This is the call of Christ.